0: We're going to be looking at first Acts chapter two, verses forty two through forty seven this morning. We're going to look at the first Timothy passage later, but let's pray before we read today. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you today as your your people. Uh, we pray, we pray, Lord, that we would come before you as your, your humble people, your grateful people, um, that we would enter into your presence expectantly today. Lord, hoping and, and waiting and expecting you to speak to us this morning, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has, has inspired and authored these words and that you still speak to us through them, that they are living and active. And so we pray that, that you would prepare our hearts, even right now, to receive whatever it is you have for us today. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This has sort of become our, our theme passage a little bit for this sermon series. And so you, if you've been here, you've probably heard us quoted at some point throughout the last couple months, but hear it one more time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I hope to do two things this morning. We're going to, the first half of our sermon is going to be sort of wrapping up, summing things up, looking back over what we've talked about over the last couple months in the living church. And then the second part of the sermon is going to be looking at this passage from 1 Timothy and some some final instructions for us that Paul gives to his uh, protege, Timothy, his disciple Timothy. So we're going to be looking at that in a few minutes. But as we've looked over the last couple months at this idea of the living church, we've been Using John Stott's book, The Living Church. And I would commend that to you again. If you haven't been reading along, I uh, just encourage you to find a copy, pick it up, read through it. It's a very easy read. It's not a super academic book. And I would just say, in general, anything by John Stott, you will be blessed if you pick it up and read it. So uh, just one more plug this morning. But uh, We're looking at this idea of the living church and this question uh, that we want to ask from time to time of what is this all about? You all came here this morning, you got on some public transportation or you got in your car, you came here to get here by 1035, maybe 1045 for some of you, 1055 for some of you, it's okay. But why? What is this all about, right? What is this all about? Why do we do the things that we do and call it church? And why are the things that we're doing as a church... In line with what God has called us to be and do. Are they in line with what God has called us to be and do? Or are they just our own clever ideas? Something that we thought, yeah, we should, we should do this. This is what church means. And the more I've read this book, The Living Church, over the last few months, the more I have found it a helpful guide and measure of God's vision for the church. And so again, I commend it to you to pick it up and read. Because these are ideas that are based in scripture, in God's word. And so here we are again today to reflect one last time on the living church, the idea of the living church. And when we began this series back in September, if you were here, we started with two questions to help us reflect on the way that we think about church. And so we're just going to put them out there again one more time today. We won't spend as much time on them, uh, but just to, to refresh our memories a little bit. So first of all, what is church? If somebody asked you that question, what is church? What would you say? Is it a building that you use, right? Is it a building that you use? Some people think this, right? Uh, I'm going, when I worked at a church, I used to say, I'm going up to the church. The church is the building, right? When we drive around Prague or walk around Prague, we see lots of churches. We say, Look at that beautiful church. And we're talking about the building, right? So is church a building that we use? Is church something you do on a Sunday morning? I go to church on Sunday morning, right? It's something I do. It's an activity that I participate in. Okay. Is that what church is? Is church an organization that you're a member of? Is it like a club or a civic organization, something that you've joined? You say, I'm a part of this church. I'm a member there, right? Uh, And you've got your card, right? I'm a member of this church. This is the one I belong to. Or is it it a community? Is it a community that you belong to, right? Um, That's the first question, okay? Let's move to the second one. And then the second one is this. Why be a part of the church? Why be a part of the church? And these were some of the options that we looked at. One is, you have to. You have to. You're here under duress. Somebody made you come today, okay? Could be your parent, could be your spouse, uh, but you are here because you have to be here, okay? Typically, that's usually children might answer that one more so, but you're here because you have to or because you're supposed to. You're supposed to be part of church. There's a sense that this is something that's good for you. You're supposed to do it. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family, and so you still go to church because you know it's a good thing, or at least people have told you that your entire life. So why be a part of a church? Because you have to, because you're supposed to, because you get to. This is a good thing, right? I love being part of the church. I get to be a part of the church. I want to. It's exciting. It's life-giving. Or the last one, you just are. You just are. And so sort of where we landed, and you can disagree with me with these, that's okay, but sort of where we tried to land and what I hope this book and sermon series has taught us is that really the church is a community that we are a part of. And the, the main analogies that the New Testament uses when it talks about church uh, is the idea of a body, right? That we are members of a body, like an arm or a leg or an ear or an eye. Paul spells all of this out. Or also a household like being a part of a family. And when we think of being part of a church in that way, that kind of a community, then we think about it in the sense that we belong to each other. That's another way that Paul has talked about it, that we belong to each other, that we depend on each other, we rely on each other. In some senses, we even need each other. And we belong to each other in a sort of for better or for worse kind of a way. And that's kind of what we're supposed to think about when we think about the church, that we belong to each other in that sort of a way. Okay. And also that we would say that we just are a part of the church. Now, hopefully there's some sense of get to. Hopefully there's a sense that when you come here on Sunday mornings that you see that there's a sense of beauty and there's a gift to being a part of this community, that you enjoy it and that it is life giving to you. We hope that that's the experience you're having with church. But also, there should be some recognition that if we are in Christ, if you are someone who is in Christ, if you have put your faith in Him for salvation, and you see Him as the Lord of your life, then you just are a part of the church. You are a part of Christ's body. Because you are members, or because you have fellowship with Christ, and by virtue of that fellowship, you have fellowship with all other believers in Him in every time and place. This is the reality that the scriptures teach us that by virtue of our fellowship with Christ, we also have fellowship with one another. And so, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you called Him Lord of your life, then you just are a member of the church. Whether you want to be or not, I can't say uh, what your relationship about that is like, but we are a part of the church. We belong to each other in Christ. And our life of faith is not primarily an individualistic pursuit. Our life in Christ, our life of faith, is not primarily an individualistic pursuit. It is something that we do together. John Stott says this, and I I love this quote. I've used it a couple times already uh, in here, but hear it again one more time. The New Testament knows nothing of an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of an unchurched Christian, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose is not to save isolated individuals, but rather to build up his church. That is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. The church is a part of God's plan for the redemption of the world. It has been a part of his plan from the very beginning. God has been using people to bring glory to himself in this world. And we've talked about this in terms of the church's dual identity, that God calls people out from the world for himself, and then he sends them back into the world to be his witnesses, and to share his good news, that this is part of what it means to be the church, the main part of what it means to be the church. And so because all of this is true, we each have a vested interest in the church being both alive and healthy. We have a vested interest in the church being alive and healthy, being a part of a church that is alive in Christ, that is full of the Holy Spirit. It is good for us, and it will feed and nourish and strengthen our faith. And that kind of church will produce good fruit for God's kingdom. So we want to be a part of a good, healthy, alive church. So that brings us to the next question. Was What does it mean to be a part of a living church? What does it mean to be a part of a living church? A church that is vibrant and healthy and alive. What are the characteristics that are marks of that kind of a church? that put it in contrast to a church that is dull or or stagnant or even dead? How would we know the difference? How do we know the difference when we see it? And this is what we've been trying to uh, look at throughout this series. Uh, But these aren't just John Stott's great ideas, as we said, about what the church should be. He reaches deep into God's word to draw out these different marks of a living church and lay them before us. And the place he starts... The place he turns to first is Acts chapter two, the passage that we just looked at and the picture that is drawn for us there of the early church, right? What is really the first church in a way. And it's a familiar passage, or hopefully a familiar, familiar passage for us. It's one that uh, if I'm here for a long time, I, you will hear me preach on this passage multiple times. Because it's one of those ones that we need to come back to again and again as the church. It's like John 3.16. We can't be reminded too often of God's love for the world and why he sent his son because of that love. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, also is a passage we need to hear again and again. It will always be an important guide for the church. And certainly there's more to say about the life of the church than these few verses, and the rest of the New Testament covers all of that for us. But we should come back here early and often to these essentials of what makes up the church. This passage is so key because this is the new community that has been formed by the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came in power with tongues of fire that landed on people. These are the people who are committed to the belief that the man Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God and that he had died on the cross for their sins and for the sins of the whole world and that on the third day he had risen from the dead. And what I love about imagining this new community, this early church, is that these are people who some of them would have known Jesus. These are people who would have walked with him, who would have talked with him, who would have heard him teach, who maybe even saw him crucified on the cross. And maybe many of them uh, saw him and interacted with the risen Christ. And so these are people who uh, have a conviction about what they believe, that Jesus had died on the cross for their sins and risen from the dead on the third day. And not only was this community committed to those beliefs, to that that doctrine, but they were committed to living in a way that reflected these beliefs. This was something new and different that was happening here in this new church. This was a people who were committed to living together in a way that was different than anyone else was doing. Because they believed that if the Son of God had really lived among them, And if the son of God had really died for them and if the son of God had really come back to life again, then that had implications for their day to day lives, how they interacted with their families and with their friends, the people that they worked with and did business with. It it, it affected everything. If the son of God had died on the cross for their sins and come back to life, then they couldn't just go on with life the way that it had always been before. That there needed to be something that changed and was different. It affected everything for this new community. The whole purpose and direction of their lives had been altered. And they were now living for him in a different sort of way. They were living to know him and to make him known in the world. To bring him glory. And this became the ultimate goal of their lives. Their identity and their mission had everything to do with Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. Why? Because he had loved them and he had given himself for them. And so they, now they saw themselves, their lives, as belonging to him. And this was a good thing. This was something they saw as a good thing. It brought them a sense of joy and of thanksgiving. They were, they were happy about this, that their lives now belong to God in Christ. In one sense, uh, the institution of the church was, was simply the, the continuation of what God had been doing throughout Israel's history, what God had been doing since he made his covenant with Abraham. Like we said, God has always been in the business of setting apart a people for his glory, uh, people bringing people to him and so that others might come to know him. But what's different and new with the church is that it has everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. The church is the community of people who are united by the Holy Spirit of God and sustained by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are a part of this called out people. We here, gathered together today, the church today, we are a part of this new community. It's not something that existed 2,000 years ago, and we're sort of the, the remnants of it. But no, the Holy Spirit is still alive and active amongst us. We are a part of God's new community. We are part of the community that gives witness to Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection that demonstrates what it means to be forgiven and to be freed from our sins. And really, our witness is not so much about our faithfulness to God, but about God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. Our witness to the world is about pointing to our Lord and what he did for us on the cross because it's here that we see the fullness of God's faithfulness to us. Jesus Christ on the cross. The very existence of the church from its beginning to now completely relies on the Holy Spirit's presence with us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the risen Jesus Christ, the one who keeps us focused on the risen Lord, the one who helps us to remain faithful to him, to live obediently to him. And so, when we look at Acts chapter 2, what we find is this wonderful and compelling picture of the early church with all of the things that they are devoted to and the sacrificial way that they loved one another. And when we see that, our response should be to say, See what the Lord has done. It is wonderful in our eyes. See what the Lord has done in that community. When we look around our church, ICP, and look at at what the Lord does amongst us, that should be our response as well. See what the Lord has done amongst us. And it is wonderful in our eyes. Thanks be to God for what he is doing in this church. Because a community that functions like the one that functions in Acts chapter 2 can only be the result of God's work amongst its members. It's not the natural tendency of human beings to live together in the way that we see in Acts chapter 2. I think most of us read this passage and we probably think that's incredible that they lived that way. It's incredible that they would do those things. When they saw someone in need, they would sell their possessions and give the money to them to make sure that they were provided for. We don't just see people doing that in the world around us all of the time that would be really hard to commit to living that way. And honestly, it's not really the most practical to to live either, if we're honest with ourselves. But it was the Holy Spirit among them who made this community alive in Christ. And it was because they were alive in Christ that they devoted themselves to these things, these marks of the living church. So let's walk back through them again one more time. They devoted themselves to worship, to glorying in God's holy name, They gathered together regularly in the temple courts and each other's homes to worship, to listen to the apostles' teaching, to pray, to celebrate the sacraments, to sing together, to worship. This was the first thing they were devoted to. They devoted themselves to evangelism, to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. They shared the good news with each other, but also with people outside of the church. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These are people who talked about Jesus. He was just a reality of their daily lives. He was the reality of their daily lives. And so they could not help but to talk about him. So they devoted themselves to evangelism. They devoted themselves to ministry. They used their gifts to serve one another and to strengthen this new spirit-filled community. They each had a role to play and they took that seriously, using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They were committed to meeting together regularly, but their commitment went beyond that. They were committed to sharing their lives together. They desired to be involved with one another, to really know each other, and to encourage one another toward Christ, to love one another as Christ had loved them. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to to reading and studying the word of God. They were devoted to prayer, to tending to their relationship with the Lord and praising him, interceding for one another and the world. They were devoted to giving, to sharing what they had with one another so that no one was ever in need. There was a recognition that all that they had had been given to them by God. And because of that, they desired to be generous with their wealth and possessions to give it to one another. And through their devotion to these things, they had an impact. They lived into the identity that Jesus had given them as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So these are some of the the marks of a living church, some of the ones that we've covered in this sermon series. And they are to show us what a church means, what it means for a church to be alive. A church that is devoted to these things is going to have an impact and it will form the people that are a part of it and it will influence the communities around them. And then Stott ends his book by talking about Timothy, and we're going to move to our second passage here. But he ends by talking about Timothy and considering what it means to be a Timothy in the 21st century. How can we be Timothys in the 21st century? We talked about Timothy a little bit a few weeks ago, and he was Paul's young protege, his disciple. Paul considered him a spiritual son. And he was tasked with leading the church in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, Paul gives Timothy three instructions that we are going to look at this morning. We're going to look at them close and their relevance to us. So here's what Paul said to Timothy. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. So these are the three instructions. We're going to just look at them uh, uh, very briefly, but these are the three instructions that Paul gives to Timothy in this verse. He says run, he says fight, and he says take hold. Run, fight, and take hold. So this is what we're gonna think about today in terms of how we can live as Timothys in the 21st century to be devoted to being a part of a living church. So the first one is this, run. And this is what Stott calls the ethical appeal, that there are good ways to live in this world, faithful ways to live in this world, and there are also bad ways to live in this world and unfaithful ways to live in this world. And Stott says, run from all of this. Meaning all of the things in this life that tempt you and pull you away from the Lord. Run from these things. Paul does not give a qualified warning here. He doesn't say, you know what? You just need to be careful. Don't, you know, just be discerning. You don't want to get too close. If you start, he says, run, flee from these things. Well, he says, whatever is bad for you, if it's evil, if the scriptures say to avoid it, then flee from it. Get as far away from it as you can. So run. The first thing he says is run away. But then he also says run toward what is good. So run away from what is bad and run toward what is good. He says pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. These are things that you should pursue in your life. These are things that you should run toward. And Paul gives lots of lists like this in the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament, you're going to find lots of places where he says, don't do these things, do these things instead. And all of them are worth reading and knowing and being familiar with. But the point of each of them is the same. Flee the devil and pursue Christ. This is something that we need to do in our lives of faith. And of course, this is true for us as individuals. These are things that we should do in our individual faith, but they're also things that we should do together. How much stronger will we be if we pursue these things as a church? Let's pursue Christ together. I'm not sure if I've ever said this in here before, but when I was in high school, I was a cross-country runner, uh, which you go out and you run 5Ks on a regular basis. I did that for several years. I was not very good, Uh, but I learned a lot from doing this. And one of the things that I realized, a lot of times you think of running as being an individual endeavor, right? You are running, you're by yourself. A lot of people run alone, that's okay. And in a race, you're trying to win the race. You're not trying to tie somebody else. You're trying to beat all of the other runners. And Paul even talks about this. But one of the things that I realized when I was running cross country is that a lot of people would run together. They would find, they called it pack running and they would find a a partner, someone to run next to them. They would find several people and they would all run the race together. And what I realized in watching them was maybe they didn't necessarily run faster, but oftentimes they would, they would run faster, but you could always run farther when you were running with somebody else. People who ran with someone else always ran farther because you have somebody else encouraging you, cheering you on and saying, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And often when one person was discouraged, when they were ready to stop, often that was me. Somebody else was there to say, keep going, keep going. We can do this. Let's do this together. Let's run together. And so this is the idea that we have as a church. Let's run together This race of faith that is before us. Let's run together. Let's pursue Christ together. So that's number one. Run. Flee from the things that are bad for you. Run towards what is good for you. Pursue Christ. The second one, Paul says, is this. The second instruction is this. Fight. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. And Stott calls this the doctrinal appeal. Meaning that truth matters truth matters right doctrine matters in the church and it's worth fighting for there is no easier way for a church to get off track but then by letting false teaching slip in to what is being said during the church or as part of the church there's no way easier way for them to get off track so much of the new testament is written to combat false teaching. If you read through the letters of the New Testament, you're going to find this time and time again, these warnings against false teaching. Don't let it sneak in to what you are hearing at church because the apostles knew how dangerous it was and how easy it was for people to get off track. So we have to know the truth so that we recognize the lies and the half-truths when we hear them. We have to know the truth and we have to be discerning. And we have to pay attention to what we hear so that we know what is true and what is not. Now, there are things that faithful Christians disagree on. There are things that faithful Christians disagree on, and that is okay. But there are essentials that we need to hold to as the body of Christ. Essentials about who Jesus is and about what he did and why he did it. That Jesus is the Son of God his only begotten son, who died on the cross for our sins and who rose again on the third day. And they're truths about ourselves that we are sinners in need of the grace that only God can give. And these are just a few of the essentials we need to hold to, but those are very basic things that we need to stay true to and fight for. We need to stand firm in these things because there's a lot of false teaching that wants to come in and say that these things are not true. These things are not true. So fight the good fight of the faith. Paul says run, Paul says fight. And then the last thing he says is this, take hold. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And this is what Stock calls the experiential appeal, experiencing the life that God has in store for us. For many of us, when we hear the phrase eternal life, we think of what's to come next, and that's not a bad thing, right? We think of uh, heaven. Eternal life is what happens after we die, after we leave this world, and that's certainly part of it. But when we hear taking hold of it, it means we just need to get there right? Taking hold of eternal life, if if that just means heaven, we just need to get there. We just need to endure through this life so we can get to the other side, because that's where the good stuff is. But Paul has something different in mind here when he's talking about this. Eternal life in the New Testament can also mean life in the age to come, or we might think of it as life in God's kingdom, And because we live on this side of Christ's resurrection, because we have received the Holy Spirit, then we can start to live into this life now already. We can live as if the kingdom of God is already here because it is in Jesus Christ. We remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that I have come so that you might have life and that you might have it to the full or have it abundantly And Jesus isn't just talking about heaven when he's giving that teaching. He is talking about now. He's saying, you can have this kind of life now. We can have kingdom life now. And Paul tells Timothy that this life is there in front of him. And so he should take hold of it and live into it already. And friends, the same is true for us today. The same life is offered to us in Christ and is ours for the taking if we want it. Paul says, take hold of this life. He says, flee all that is sinful and evil in this world. Run towards all that is good and righteous. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. And we can take hold of this eternal life by devoting ourselves to these these practices like the early church did. This is a part of the eternal life to which we have been called. And this is the community that the Spirit calls and empowers us to be. Uh, Stott has one more quote that I wanted to share. He says this, the apostle, uh, about this verse, he says, the apostle seems to set before us here three absolute goals. There is such a thing as goodness. Pursue it. There is such a thing as truth. Fight for it. And there is such a thing as life. Lay hold of it. May God enable us to make an unabashed commitment to those three absolutes, to what is true, to what is good, and to what is real. When Stott started his book, I know I'm borrowing a lot from Stott today, but when he starts his book, he makes three assumptions about his audience. One, that they are committed to the church. Two, that they are committed to the church's mission That they are committed to being this called out people that is sent back into the world. And three, that they are committed to the church's reform and renewal. That there is a recognition that like all things, the church is affected by sin and the fall. And we constantly must be called back to faithfulness in Jesus Christ and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And so we've presented uh, this sermon series with the same assumptions in mind about ICP, about the International Church of Prague, that we are committed to these same things, that we are committed to the church, this this strange, Holy Spirit-filled new community that is defined by Christ to death and resurrection, that we are committed to the church's mission, to being this called-out people that is also sent back into the world to be his witnesses, and that we are also committed as a church to our own reform and renewal, to being corrected, to being, uh, to being set on the right path again and again. And so when we, we recognize all of these things, we want to devote ourselves to these practices and marks of the living church that God might reform and renew us, that he might strengthen our witness in the world and that he might make us evermore alive, all for his glory. Carol started the service this morning uh, with a verse from 1 Peter chapter 2. We didn't make this, we didn't plan this together, but it was how I was going to end my sermon today, so it feels quite fitting that we want to end with a reminder of who the church is, the identity that God has given us in Christ. So hear these verses again from 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, that, that you have given us mercy, that we have received the mercy offered to us from your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We thank you that you have called us to be a part of this community, a community that has everything to do with Christ's death and resurrection. And we pray that you would help us to live into this vision you have of your new community, we thank you that, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have revealed your truth to us, that you have called us to be your people. And again, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that we would be your faithful people and that you would use us in this world to bring you glory and to call other people to yourself. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.